were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, good morning, everybody. All right. Uh, If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn and open them to Mark uh, chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Uh, that is where we'll be at this morning, and I'm, I'm so grateful for Kevin and Dad uh, preaching the last couple of weeks. Uh, it gave me a much-needed time of, of rest from preaching, as well as it gave me the opportunity to work on a couple of other things for our church. Uh, one of those things I'll be talking to you about later at the very end of our, of our gathering today. Uh, but while the break was nice, I, uh, I was eager and ready uh, to get back to preaching, and so I've been very excited to bring this text uh, before you and present it to you all this morning. So let's start with a word of prayer, and, uh, and then we'll jump in. Father God, we do thank you for a day to celebrate, Lord, the freedom that we have in you. And Lord, we thank you for, for a day to, to gather with fellow brothers and sisters, Lord, to encourage one another, to strengthen one another, to sharpen one another. And Lord, we ask that as we continue our time of worship, um, that it would truly, Lord, that you would help us, help us exalt and treasure you above all else. Uh, Help as your word goes forth, Lord. I ask that this would not just uh, tickle ears, but that this would shake us down to our souls. And so we come expectant to your word, knowing that it is through your word that you change and transform us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do a great work today and help me, Lord, get out of the way of what you are doing. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so this morning to start things out, I want you to think about a time that you've had a good idea. Okay, a good idea. Now, this is going to be easier for some. This might be more difficult for others because maybe some of you don't really have a lot of good ideas. I mean, if you can be honest, right, maybe some of you, most of your ideas are actually bad ideas and people have tried to help you kind of work through that. But I think all of us at some degree, uh, you know, at some point in our life, we've had a good idea. So think about a time that you've had a good idea. 
And then think about a time where someone else has tried to take credit for that good idea you had. All right, like, like think about it. Maybe, maybe some of you, it's like something happened this week, right? Someone tried to take credit for a good idea you had. Maybe it was sometime in the past that someone tried to take credit for an idea you had. And maybe they didn't even do it on purpose, okay? So I do this a lot with Brittany uh, unknowingly, all right? She will uh, suggest something to me. Uh, a few months will go by. I'll forget that she was the one that told me this good idea, and then I will bring up to her, like, hey, I've had this great epiphany. Uh, it's just come to me. Uh, and, and, and she, though, you know, she's like, she's usually very gracious with me. A lot of times she just kind of lets me run with it. You know, that's my husband leading the way with his great ideas. And, uh, and then sometimes she's just very gracious. She comes alongside and says, you know, now, now you remember, like we, we talked about this uh, three months ago, and I had maybe suggested this, and, and it's like, oh yeah, that's right, that's right. Most of my good ideas really are Brittany's ideas uh, just a few months later where I feel like it's now my idea, okay? Um, but, but listen, how does it feel, how does it feel when someone tries to take credit for something that you did or thought of? Like what, something happens inside of you when that happens, okay? For example, you're in a meeting, okay? You had suggested an idea in the meeting a few months ago. Everyone kind of forgot about it. Then someone else brings it back up and everyone starts praising that person for the idea. Like, isn't there something that happens in you? Like there's something in you that just has to scream and yell like, that was my idea, right? I, I deserve the recognition and the praise for that, right? Now, you, you might be, you know, since you're a Christian, you might kind of have some Christianese ways of doing that. You might say, you know, well, thank you so-and-so for reminding us all of what I had brought up, you know, a few months ago. There's ways that you can do that, but there's something inside of you that just screams and, and says, no, like, like, that was my idea. Now, why do we feel that way? Why do we feel that way? Well, it's partly because in our sin, in our turning from the desires of God, we are obsessed in seeking the fame of ourselves. We are obsessed in seeking the fame of ourselves. We want the praise. We want the recognition. We want the honor. And I mean, this goes back to the very beginning with the first sins ever committed, one by Satan who wanted to be God, and then Adam and Eve who wanted to be like God, right? We want people to worship us, to praise us, to know how great we are. But if we can be honest, we are miserable living this way. Like, it's a miserable way to live in seeking your own fame and recognition. But unfortunately, it's the default that we all live by. We, we default to this living for the fame of ourselves. And, and even if you're not that person that wants to be like a celebrity or wants to be world-renowned, you don't want to have all the followers on social media. So you, you might be thinking, Grant, I don't want to be famous. Don't, that doesn't apply to me. But listen, even in your small circles, in your family, in your work, in your church, you want your greatness to be known. But church, listen, when you are living for the fame of yourself, 
you are not really following Jesus. When you are living for the fame of yourself, you are not really following Jesus. Followers of Jesus live for the glory and the fame of Jesus, and their lives are spent and poured out seeking to know him and make him known. And so my question for you guys this morning is, whose fame are you living for? Whose fame are you living for? Now, you might say, okay, Grant, I admit, okay, at times, right, most of the time, I'm living for the fame of myself. But then comes the question, is it even possible to live for the fame of another? Like, sometimes that doesn't even feel possible, right? Is it even possible to live for the fame of another? And to help us answer that question, look with me now at Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32. And it says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. We pick up the story with Jesus and his disciples on the road. Okay, they're on a road trip. Uh, but this just isn't any road trip. This is the last road trip because this is the road to Jerusalem where Jesus has already explained and taught them that when he gets to Jerusalem, he is going to be killed. But the previous two times that he's told them this, we see by their responses that they're not really getting it. It's not really uh, making sense to them. Because you remember, the, so this is the third of, 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 of three times him telling the disciples he's going to be killed in Jerusalem. After the first time that Jesus tells them this, we see how Peter responds. And Peter actually pulls Jesus aside and rebukes Jesus. Which, even if you're new to church, you know that's always the wrong thing to do, to rebuke Jesus, right? Peter pulls him aside because Peter believes that Jesus is the Christ and he is the Messiah, but it's not clicking with Peter yet how Jesus' death and resurrection is really going to save or rescue anyone. So that was the first time Jesus told them that he was going to be killed. The second time that Jesus tells them he's going to be killed, an argument breaks out amongst the disciples. And what they're arguing about is not how great Jesus is that he's going to be killed and then raised back to life. No, they're arguing about who's the greatest amongst themselves. And so we see by their responses that it's not really coming together. It's not making sense as to why, you know, Jesus is going to be killed and why he's going to be raised back to life. They're still not getting it. And here we now see a third time. And Jesus, Jesus throws in some more details. He says he's going to be mocked. He's going to be spit on. He's going to be flogged. And then he's going to be killed. It's the third time Jesus is telling them this. Third time's a charm, right? Third time's a charm. Surely they will respond better this time, right? But they don't. But they don't. Three times they're not getting it. Uh, they're responding badly. Why? why? Why do they keep responding badly? Because they don't yet understand what it all means. 
They don't yet understand what it all means. They haven't been able to embrace Jesus' death and resurrection because they don't understand what it all means uh, for them. Uh, last, last year, Jackson played uh, flag football here in, in Franklin through the Boys and Girls Club. He had a blast. Uh, it was awesome. It was a preschool league, okay? So envision kindergartners and younger playing football. And uh, uh, I don't think I have to explain that with kids that young, there needed to be a lot of uh, coaches and parental help, okay, in, in getting them to be able to run football plays and to put them in the right spot. And so I was out there a lot with him, kind of getting things set up and trying to help all the kids do what they're supposed to do. And there was this one kid who, after every play, would typically always just walk back to the line of scrimmage, okay? And we have limited time for practice and games. And so imagine this, like we run a play, uh, mass chaos has broken loose, right? Everyone is all over the field, and we're saying, okay, everyone back to the line so we can try to run another play. And all the kids usually run back to the line, but there was one who would always walk. And so I would go up to him and say, hey, buddy, okay, let's, let's hustle. Let's hustle back to the line, you know? Uh, come on, let's, let's hustle. And he would still just kind of look at me and just kind of walk. And there's only so much you can do when a child that is not your own is not listening to you, right? So I just tried to say it more excitingly, like, all right, buddy, here we go. We're going to hustle. We're going to hustle. Like I tried to act it out, be a little bit more flamboyant with it. And he still, I could just tell, I just wasn't getting through to him. And then it was the last game of the season. I'm once again just trying to get him to hustle back to the line. And he looks up at me, and you know what he asks? He says, what does hustle mean? <laughs> the last game of the season, what does hustle mean? Like, yes, that makes sense. Okay, all right. So day one of practice to this year, we're defining what hustle means. But he didn't understand you, right? Like it, it wasn't clicking because he didn't know what it means. He didn't know what it all meant, okay? And so this is the third time that they are hearing about the upcoming death and resurrection of Jesus. They're responding so badly because they don't yet understand what it means. And some of you have maybe grown up in church your whole life. You've maybe heard about Jesus. You've heard about the death and resurrection of Jesus. You've celebrated Good Friday. You've celebrated Easter. But you haven't really understood or embraced what it means for your life. But the good news is Jesus isn't going to leave them hanging here, okay? He's not going to leave us hanging here. After the bad reaction from uh, James and John, which we'll get to in a moment, he tells them the meaning of his death and resurrection, okay? He tells them why he must be mocked and spit on and flogged and killed. So skip down to verse 45. Spoiler alert, we're going to the end, okay? Skip down to verse 45, and because Jesus wants us to understand why he was to be killed, why he had to be killed, excuse me. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why is Jesus going to willingly give his life up to be mocked, to be spit on, to be flogged, to be killed? To give his life as a ransom for many. 
a ransom. The, the language that Jesus is using here is describing a price that is paid to release someone from bondage. Okay, And when we speak of Jesus giving his life as a ransom, we understand that it means that his life was the price that was paid to liberate us from the misery and the penalty of our sins. And then look at verse 45 again. Look at verse 45. It says, to give his life as a ransom for many. That word for means instead of or in place of. Jesus paid the price to liberate us from sin and death, and he did it in our place. In our place, instead of us. He liberated us from the penalty of sin. He liberated us from the misery of sin. You see, we often, when we think about sin, we often just think about uh, the eternal consequences of sin and the eternal punishment of sin. And we forget that one of the reasons that Jesus calls us to repent of our sins right now is because right now our sins are harming us. They're causing us to be miserable, like they're leaving us in misery right now. And so, yes, he paid the penalty, right? He paid the price to liberate us from the eternal consequences of sin, but he also liberated us from the misery of sin right now. He calls us to repent and turn from our sin right now, because right now our sin is stealing our joy that we could be having in Christ. And he liberated us from the penalty of sin. He liberated us from the misery of sin. And not only did he just do this, but Jesus willingly did this for us. He was determined to rescue his people. Look back up at verse uh, 32. If you look back up at verse 32, um, it says that they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. Now, we don't know exactly why they were amazed or afraid, but many speculate it because Jesus has told them when he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to be killed, and yet Jesus is the one leading the way to Jerusalem. I, you have to be a little amazed and a little afraid of that. Like he says, when we get there, I'm going to be killed. And he's not dragging his feet about it. He's not trying to find, you know, some other stops along the way. He has set his face towards Jerusalem and he is determined to go and pay the ransom for his people. And so remember one of the questions I asked at the beginning. Is it possible to live for the fame of another, right? Is that even possible? And I don't think it is unless the other is worthy of it. Is it possible to live for the fame of another? I don't think it is unless the other person that you're living for the fame is is worthy of it, right? And church, Jesus is worthy, He is worthy. I mean, what kind of love is this? That he would be determined to go to Jerusalem, determined to go and be mocked and spit on and flogged and killed to pay the price to liberate us from our sin. He did it all in our place. Like, what kind of love is that? What a good God we have. What a glorious Savior Jesus is. 
So is it, is it possible to live for the fame of another? Yes, if he's worthy. And church, Jesus is worthy. He is so worthy of all fame and glory and honor. The greatest thing in the universe is to know him and make him known. And if you struggle, if you struggle living for the fame of Jesus instead of living for the fame of yourself, the first thing that you need to wrestle with, wrestle with is you really need to, to see if you have understood and embraced the meaning of the cross. Or are you going to get to the end of your life, a life that has been lived for your own fame and your own glory, and are you going to be like that little boy asking me at the end of your life, what does the cross mean? The cross means that Jesus is worthy of all of our lives. He's worthy of all fame. He's worthy of all glory. He's worthy of all honor. So is it possible to live for the fame of another? Yes, if he's worthy, and Jesus is worthy. Whose fame are you living for? But let's see how James and John respond to this third prediction. It should be fun. Are you guys up for that? I mean, we're already here. The Bibles are already open. Let's go. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's, and, and remember, let's give them some grace. They were not able to skip ahead to verse 45 like we did, okay? Uh, but let's just for fun see how they respond. And we'll see through their response, we're going to see how to live for the fame of Jesus instead of ourselves. Okay, we've accomplished so far that it is possible if he's worthy and Jesus is worthy. But how are we to live for the fame of Jesus instead of ourselves? Let's let's keep going through the text in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, okay, right? These are the sons of thunder, part of the inner three. They were at the transfiguration with Peter. They've kind of left Peter out of this conversation, though, right? They came up to him and said to him, teacher. We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Okay, guys. All right. Verse 36. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. They're saying, give us status. Give us power. Give us fame. We, we want to use your upcoming honor to honor ourselves as well. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Okay, the, the cup to drink is the cup of God's righteous wrath for sin. It's the judgment of God. Jesus says, are you able to endure uh, the wrath of God being poured out on you for sin like I am? Right? That's the, that's the cup that Jesus is going to drink. That's the cup in the garden that Jesus asked the Father for that cup to be removed. But he nonetheless says, not my will, but your will uh, be done. Okay, so look, look at their prideful, kind of overly confident response, uh, revealing that they don't really understand what he's asking. Verse 39, and they said to him, we are able. Confidence, they've got confidence. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. 
Okay, Jesus asked them, are you able to drink the cup of God's wrath and endure the suffering that I will endure? Jesus knows that they are not able to do that. That's why he came to drink the cup in their place, right? But he does tell them that to a lesser degree, yes, you will drink some of the cup of, suf- of suffering, right? We, we know that James will end up being the first of the apostles killed and martyred. We know that John will be the last as he's exiled to Patmos. And so both of them, to some degree, will share in the sufferings of Christ, but not to the full extent of what Jesus is about to experience as he will drink the judgment and be immersed in the wrath of God to pay the ransom for our sins. But what did this request reveal about what was in the heart of James and John? It revealed that they were still living for their own fame, their own status, their own achievements, They wanted to be honored and praised. They wanted to be known for their greatness. And they wanted to be elevated above the other disciples of Jesus, even Peter, who was part of their you know, part of the inner three. They wanted to be elevated above him, just James and John, one on the right and one on the left. And and Matthew's account really shows us how bad they wanted this too. Okay, because get this, it was not just James and John asking this. Matthew in the parallel passage includes a detail that Mark does not. It was not just James and John. So look up on the screen at Matthew 20, 20 through 21. It says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Guys, get this. They brought their mom. Which we're all like, okay, because we know when you really want something, you get your mom involved and she will make it happen, right? We know this to be true, maybe not in every example, but most of our moms, when we really want something, we get them involved and they're going to make it happen. For example, when I was in fifth grade, I really did not like the class that I was in because I did not like my teacher. And there were a lot of reasons for that, but one was because this teacher would make us brush our teeth after every lunch. Lunch. But it wasn't that we, could, we couldn't use water and we couldn't use uh, toothpaste. We had to pull a dry, like crusty toothbrush out of our desk, brush our teeth dry, and then we couldn't rinse it. We just had to shove it back in the desk for the next day when we would once again pull out our lunch from yesterday and brush our teeth with it. It was awful, all right? I hope you all can kind of feel for me on that, all right? Um, But nonetheless, I did not like uh, that class. I did not like that teacher. Um, But um, um, so I, as a fifth grader, cannot just walk into the principal's office and uh, and ask to be changed classes. Um, But if I could get my mom fired up enough about it, I knew that what principals fear most are passionate mothers who have gone into full-on mama bear mode coming into the office. And so I got my mom fired up enough about, uh, up enough about this toothbrush thing, and the next week I was in a different class, right? 
And another example, just real quick, okay? In high school, I took a theater class because I thought it would be an easy elective. Uh, but then came time in the theater class where one of the projects was to put on stage makeup. And if you guys know me, you know I'm like really weird about certain textures and especially putting anything on my face like sunscreen or lotion. It just kind of weirds me out. Like I'm not going to do it. So I was ready to just take an F on the assignment. There's no way I'm putting stage makeup on. I got my mom involved and she somehow gets a doctor's note saying I have sensitive skin and I should be excused from uh, the assignment. Okay. That one actually feels really good to get off my chest. It's been, it's been about 15 years since high school, and I really haven't shared that with many other people. Uh, I think I was always sort of fearful they would, someone would find out and like take my diploma back until I went and put it, the makeup on. Uh, but, but nonetheless, all that to be said, this wasn't like James and John. This wasn't just like a spur-of-the-moment request. Like, you know, hey, you know, this might be kind of cool. No, they wanted it badly enough. Even their mom is is now involved. And what I want you to see by this request of James and John is that their goals, their goals have blinded them from seeing God's will. Their goals have blinded them from seeing God's will. And oh church, doesn't this so often happen with us? Our goals, our ambitions, our dreams, and our desires many times can blind us from seeing God's will for our lives. James and John are blind in this situation. They should be seeing how worthy Jesus is of all honor, praise, and glory. They should be saying, Jesus, we are willing to do anything you ask of us. But no, they're so blinded by their goal of fame, status, and honor that they say, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now listen, I'm not against having goals, and I don't believe Jesus is against us having ambitions and plans and to go after those things, not at all. But in those goals and plans and dreams, are we being ambitious for our fame or for his? Are we being ambitious for our fame or for his? Last year, I started using a planner to plan out my days and my weeks and my months. And in the planner, it encourages you to, to make a list of goals and to kind of break down those goals into some actionable items throughout the day. And that's been a very helpful practice for me to do just in my planning and in my productivity, keeping me focused on what I need to be doing. But listen, when I first started to do that, when I first opened it up to the goals page, I mean, I just started writing down all the things that I wanted to accomplish. And I very quickly was convicted by the Spirit, like, is this what God wants? I'm like halfway through the goal writing page, and I'm thinking, like, is this what God wants? Are these just my personal goals, or is this part of God's will and plan? And so I had to go back to the goal writing phase, and I first had to start with prayer. And I had to prayerfully consider what goals I should be having. Are these goals being ambitious for my own fame or are these goals being ambitious for the fame of Jesus? And I had to write those goals down. But then even when I had them written down, I have to hold those with open hands and pray like what Jesus prayed in the garden. Like, God, these are my desires, but not my will. Your will be done. 
I'm going to go after some of these goals, but Lord, I'm holding them with open hands, like not my will, your will be done. And if you are going to make goals, which I think you should, but you don't want your goals to blind you from God's will, then you better start with prayer and you better be delighting yourself in the Lord or else your goals are going to be all out of whack. Because it's when you are delighting yourself in the Lord, that is when your goals and the desires of your heart starts to align with God's will. That's what the psalmist is talking about in Psalm 37. Psalm 37 verse 4. We'll have it up here um, on the screen. It says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, that's like a great coffee mug uh, verse, right? You'll find it in Christian bookstores if there even are such things still out there. Uh, but, but that doesn't mean that God's just going to give you everything you want. And praise God he doesn't because sometimes we want some really bad things that would be bad for us, right? But no, it's saying that, that, that as you delight yourself in the Lord, he is changing and transforming and he's aligning your heart with his. So how do we live for the fame of Jesus? How do we live for the fame of Jesus? We, we know it's possible if he's worthy of it, and he is. But how do we live for the fame of Jesus? We, well, first, by prioritizing God's will over our goals. Not to say we don't have goals, but we prior, prioritize God's will over our goals. And then we are making sure we are delighting ourselves in him. And as we delight ourselves in him, our desires, our heart starts to align with the heart of God. How else do we live for the fame of Jesus? Well, look, look back at Mark 10. How else do we live for the fame of Jesus? By seeking to serve others. By seeking to serve others. Look back at Mark 10, verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Jesus takes this opportunity to teach his disciples how people in his kingdom will lead, uh, lead differently than the kingdoms of the world. So typically in the kingdoms that we set up, whether it be political kingdoms or work kingdoms or social kingdoms, typically leaders who are not, not leading and living for the fame of Jesus, they typically try to influence others by power and control and maybe even a little bit of fear right? And they pursue leadership because they think it will be a way to get other people to serve them. And many people then take these positions of leadership and they try to use the position to domineer and to rule over the ones that they are leading. And that, so that's typically how leaders lead who are living for the fame of themselves. But that's not how leaders lead who are living for the fame of Jesus. He says in verse 43, look at verse 43. Jesus says, but it shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life 
as a ransom for many. Jesus says, hey, if you're going to follow me, you are not going to win influence in the world by power and control, and you're not going to get great joy and happiness by power and control. If you're going to win influence, if you're going to obtain great joy and true greatness, that's going to be obtained by serving, by serving. And I love, I love when science catches up with what we know to be true in God's word. Back in 2007, the New York Times Magazine wrote an article called Happiness 101. Happiness 101. And the article explained how a group of psychologists and researchers, what they wanted to do was band together and take a scientific approach as to find what makes people happy. Okay, And what they found in their research was that doing pleasurable activities did not actually lead to lasting happiness for people. And that was kind of a shocking conclusion for them, right? That, that you would think doing a pleasurable activity, maybe eating something pleasurable, drinking something pleasurable, doing something else that brought you pleasure, right? You would think that that would lead to lasting happiness, but it did not. What they found was that doing those pleasurable activities only led to people being addicted to those pleasurable activities, Even if they were good and healthy activities, if if that activity was bringing them pleasure, it didn't act, doing those things didn't actually lead to lasting happiness and joy. It only caused them to be addicted more to that activity. But this is interesting what they found. And this was in 2007. It it was found, uh, what they really found was what Jesus taught 2,000 years before, uh, but they're just a little slow on the uptake, all right? The study found that the best way to increase your happiness is to do acts of selfless kindness and to pour yourself out for needy people. Psychologists and researchers, this isn't a group of believers, this isn't a group of followers of Jesus, this is psychologists and researchers, they're coming to this conclusion, right? The researchers pointed out that when you are leading an unselfish life of service to other people, it gives you a sense of meaning, of being useful and valuable, of having a life of significance. The researchers found that the best way to care for yourself is to stop only being concerned about yourself. The best way to care for yourself is to stop only being concerned about yourself. But listen, listen, followers of Jesus, we do not just serve. We don't just serve others in order to get happiness, right? Like that's not our end goal. That's not our reason for serving. That would merely be uh, living selflessly for selfish reasons. And those two, that's not going to last or hold up very long. No, we, we live humbly, serving others because the love of Jesus compels us to. Jesus is the one worthy of fame and glory and honor, and we live to know him and make him known, and he has set us an example in how to love and lead and be great in life. And he says, whoever would be great among you must serve. Whoever would be great among you must become like a slave. And so if you want to know how to live for the fame of Jesus, start serving. Because most everything else you do in life is telling you that life is all about you. But something strange happens when you start serving. It starts speaking to your soul and telling you the truth that life is not all about you. 
The best way to care for yourself is to stop only being concerned about yourself. Some of the good news of the gospel is that we are now free to serve, not for selfish reasons, but for the glory of God and the good of people, because Jesus has freed us from being enslaved and miserable in our love of self and self-promoted fame, and he empowers us now to be controlled by the love of Christ and to live for his fame alone. I want you to look at the words uh, that Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 through 15. He writes, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, he's, he's freed us from being enslaved of this love of self and this seeking our own fame and this self-promotion. And he's freed us from that. And now the love of Christ controls us and compels us. And so church, let me ask you, whose fame are you living for? Whose fame are you living for? Are you miserable in living for the fame of yourself? Or are you finding deep and lasting joy in living for the fame of Jesus? Whose, whose fame are you living for at, at work? Whose fame are you living for at your workplace? Whose fame are you living for in your marriage or as a parent? Whose fame are we living for as a church, right? Whose, Whose fame are you living for in your neighborhood? Whose fame are you living for when you make goals and plans for the future? Whose fame are you living for when you decide where to live and how to use and spend your money? Have you truly understood and embraced what it means that Jesus Christ suffered and died in your place? that he paid your ransom, that he liberated you not only from the penalty of sin, but he has liberated you from the misery of sin. Have your your goals blinded you from God's will for your life? Have you experienced the happiness and joy in serving others, or are you miserably just seeking ways for others to serve you? In 1904, there was a young man who graduated high school in Chicago. His name was William Borden. And William Borden, he came from a wealthy family who, uh, for his graduation gift, sent him on a trip around the world. Okay, very wealthy family. 1904 sends their son on a trip around the world. And it was on the trip that, that uh, William, who also had a love for Jesus, uh, God started to stir in his heart and call him to be a missionary. And so he came back to the U.S., he went to college, and it was in college then that he started to prepare uh, to go to a certain people group in China that were predominantly Muslim. And after he graduated from seminary, uh, to the shock really of everyone, and to really a lot of his family and friends' disappointment, he gave away his wealth to missions and to churches, and he sailed to Egypt in order to study languages before then he would sail to China. 
I mean, think about this. Someone in their early 20s, already a millionaire in America, anything, you know, was available to him, could have sought more fame and recognition, could have sought success in business, could have just invested the money and lived off of it. But he gave it all away sailed to Egypt to study because God was calling him to China. However, in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis and he died within a month at the age of 25. And now in Cairo, in an American cemetery, there is a small cement slab as a gravestone And under William's name, it reads this. We'll have it up on the screen. And Valerie, you can just leave it up. This is what's on his his gravestone. Apart from Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Could have been millionaire, famous, successful. Gave it all away to try to go to China dies in Egypt apart from Christ there is no explanation for such a life someone who's living for the fame of themselves can look at his life and think what a waste what a waste he didn't even accomplish his goal of getting to China right I mean someone who's living for the fame of themselves can can look at his life and just think man I would have done that differently he really just wasted everything that he had But someone who's living for the fame of Jesus, however, can see his life and can see how both his life and his wealth propelled droves of missionaries to go spread the fame of Christ to the nations. And his life, even as short as it was, it has inspired countless other people to seek to know Christ and to go and make him known. But that inscription really uh, resonated with me. Apart from Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Like, shouldn't that be what we want people to be able to say if they look at our lives? Like, that's, that's what I would want people to, to be able to look at my life and say, apart from Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. I want people to look at my, my goals and my plans and my dreams and to be able to say, apart from Christ, There is no explanation for these goals. I want people to look at my bank account and and, and my ambitions and and my habits and how I use my time, and I want them to be able to look at those things and say, apart from Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. But listen, radical service to Jesus does make sense. Because he's worthy. Because Jesus is worthy of all fame and honor and glory. Because Jesus has given his life as a ransom for you and me in our place. I want to be ambitious for making him famous. For letting people know him and making him known. Whose fame are you living for? Let's pray.